First you trade the Cadillac for a microphone. Then you lie to me about the band. Now you're gonna put me right back in the joint. They're not gonna catch us. We're on a mission from God. Greetings, everyone. You're listening to the podcast. So there I was. It's how every great aviation tale begins. Repeat here in Paris as we record this brief intro to episode 11. This one is entitled, We Were on a Mission from God. That is a great intro. Hey, this is Fig, uh, and I'm not in Paris. I'm in Kansas City, and you are going to love this interview. It was a fun one. Yeah, we had a special guest, uh, Sheriff, who I've known for more than four decades now. We went to high school together. We learned to fly while we were in college. And some of the stories you'll hear will find out why we were on a mission from God. So the other stuff he did, Fig, that impressed you. He was a uh, naval aviator, and he was a mission, uh, tactical mission uh, guy in two different um, airframes. Did uh, the A6 Intruder and the S3 Viking. S3 Viking, and he did multiple uh, floats, rotations on the carrier. Had some great stories and a lot of experience. And that's, that's, that's important. Indeed. A lot of experience and fascinating stuff. Um, you know, I mean, you and I were both carrier qualified tail hook and all that, but we never did the long pumps that those guys did. And it's always fascinating to me to listen to, uh, what they lived through on a day to day basis and the the constant danger (laughs) that is the aircraft carrier deck. Then we got to a special part at the end of this show, and I think uh, I, I promised you that I would blow your mind, and I, I think I kind of did. I, I surprised you, oh, you with, did. Uh, with a story of uh, challenges overcome, and I think you'll find that Sheriff's story, everybody, you'll find his story is inspiring and motivating. Um, if you've ever lived through a tough time in your life and wanted to quit something, uh, listen to this. You'll realize, you know what, there's actually hope out there, even when it seems like there isn't any, I think. Well, that's for real. So sit back and enjoy. Episode 11, we were on a mission from God. So, there I was. That's how all great aviation stories start. This is Fig, and I'm in Kansas City. Joined by my co-host, co-host, my co-host. Oh, man. Repeat. All the edits are started already. There we go. I'm not even going to edit that stuff out. Repeat don't here. I why you would. No. I just don't know why you would. Greetings, everybody. Repeat here. I'm coming to you live from Anchorage, Alaska today. And we've got a special guest with us today. His name is Sheriff, and he's coming to us from Dallas, Texas. Sheriff, welcome. Hello. Sheriff and I met 44 some years ago to give you an idea how old we are. We met about four years before we were born. I think that was it. That's um, <laughs> so now, uh, so Sheriff and I went to high school together. Then we went to college together and I'm pretty sure we're the only two from our high school, at least in that rough era of it went into the military. So there uh, I go beating everything up instead of going uh, uh, into the Marines. Sheriff joined the Navy and went on to become an A6BN. After the Navy, he went to, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to tell his story. I'm going to let you tell his story. 
But uh, so we'll go from there. Let's I'm going to go with Fig's question. Uh, Sheriff, why don't you tell us how it is that you first got uh, involved with aviation and we'll work our way from there all the way into your store. Well, all right. That started pretty early. So um, I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And between the second and the third grade, my parents moved us into a different house. And that house was near an airport. And I saw it was actually the downtown airport in Baton Rouge. And I saw the airplanes flying over and I immediately became interested in airplanes. So third grade, fourth grade, I spent all my time in the library studying about World War I airplanes and then World War II airplanes and then Korea and Vietnam. I just worked my way up chronologically. Uh, and my parents saw this interest and the, our next door neighbor had a Piper Warrior, I believe. And they arranged for me to go on my first flight. And that's when I was uh, eight, maybe nine years old. And at that point, it was done. I was, I was hooked. Uh, I spent the next probably five years at the downtown airport. I would ride my bicycle out there and beg and plead for a ride or uh, an opportunity to fly anywhere I could. And by the time I started sixth grade, uh, I could uh, hold altitude. I could turn to a commanded heading. I didn't have a license, but I had some rough idea of what flying was about. Nice. From then on, pretty much everything in my life was aimed towards what I was ultimately going to do, which was uh, flying the military. Very cool. So, and, and then we met in... I think you were a sophomore and I was a junior at high school. We went to uh, to high school in Vicksburg, Mississippi together. We just figured that out. And that was uh, 44 some years ago. After after high school, uh, I went to LSU, which was obviously in Baton Rouge. You came back home, went to LSU. Uh, you got your call signing kind of a kind of an unusual way. Most guys showed up with some cool call sign and then wound up getting it changed on them to uh to something far more embarrassing but uh you you worked your way through college at kind of an unusual job why don't you share us share that with us sure well i was a, a sheriff's deputy in east baton rouge <laughs> parish for a couple of years uh, yeah. almost two years so uh that's where my my final call sign wound up coming from nice that's, awesome. that's where the sheriff came from i went through uh, other iterations before then, but that's the one that stuck once I got into the fleet. Nice. Yeah. That's like lawman. That's like a lawman. Right. I was just thinking of that. Lawman was a Arizona Highway Patrolman before he went in the Marine Corps. That's right. I remember he used to tell uh we would have safety stand downs, which was usually before a 96 hour weekend. And he would give the he called them hair teeth and eyeballs presentation. Or the and his goal was how many Marines he could make sick because he said he was 21 years old. He had a gun on his hip, a badge on his chest, and a license to speed across the state of Arizona as fast as his cruiser would take him. He said he would go 150 miles an hour trying to get halfway across the state, catch a, an escape bank robber from Illinois or something like that. But it wasn't long on the job before he realized that drunk drivers were, were the people that were really killing people in mass out there. And uh, so he... 
he shared his experiences with uh, young Marines, uh, drinking and driving accidents that he came across. And he had more than one Marine come to him after their long weekend and go, you know, I shaved a few knots off my top end speed, having seen your, your videos and your pictures, sir. So thank you. But lawman went on to become blue angel number two. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's right. So, I asked him what the hardest part about that was. He says in the first several practices, he thought his arm was going to f- turn on uh, catch on fire and fall off because they put yeah, from <laughs> holding the, yeah, from the, holding the stick. Yeah. They put a bungee. Yeah. Most people don't know this. They put a bungee cord for forward pressure on the stick. 40 pounds. He says 40 pounds, constant 40 pounds. Yeah. Brutal. Well, Sheriff, <laughs> that's pretty, uh, that's, that's a pretty unique intro. Tell us about the Navy. Yeah, the Navy. Let's hear, let's hear about that. So uh, I went into the Navy in 1989, I believe. I graduated from college in 1988, and I wanted to stabilize my relationship with my future wife. So I stayed there as a flight instructor for about a year, and then I went into the Navy. I had all my certificates and ratings up to a commercial instrument, but I didn't have, meet the vision requirements. You gotta be kidding me. And so I uh, went ahead and went in under the NFO program. And I went through training in Pensacola. And then I selected for A6s in Pensacola and went to Whidbey Island, Washington and flew A6s there uh, for an extended tour as a junior officer. I wound up spending a little over three years in my fleet squadron there after the year that I spent at the A6 RAG at VA-128. And then I was coming up on rotating out in 1994-ish, and that's when that big riff was going on. And I was not regular Navy. I'd gone through the AOCS program, so I had a reserve commission. My CO shot a silver bullet into somebody. I don't know who. But uh, he managed to get me orders to go to the S3 because they were shutting down the A6. And I remember talking to the placement officer about the S3. And uh, I said, well, you know, I've been in the fleet for almost three and a half years now. And uh, when am I going to get my short tour? And he said, oh, you'll get it at the S3 rack. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So I'll go there and I'll learn the airplane and then I'll stay for another two years as an instructor. And he went, uh, no, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna go to the rag and you're going to learn the S3 and then we're going to send you right back into the fleet. So that's pretty much what happened. I, uh, I went to BS. Gosh, I can't remember the number of the squad. Yeah, well, you're thinking that I mean, you hit, hit a couple terms. So, uh, RIF is reduction in force. They were reducing the size of the military, uh, in the early nineties. And then, uh, the rag we've talked about the rags before, but also that's the replacement air group where a guy goes after he gets his wings or when he changes airplanes to learn how to fly that new airplane, which is going to be his fleet aircraft. So you wind up at your S3 squadron. Yeah, I went to the S3 rag in San Diego. And then from there, uh, my squadron that was going to be taking me, which was VS-22 over on the East Coast, they wanted me to go to safety school. Uh, so I went to Monterey, California and went through the safety school there in Monterey. And then I went to VS-22. And 
that wound up being an extended fleet tour as well. That wound up being more than three years uh, in the fleet there. So by the time I got to the end of that tour, I'd had 11 years in the Navy and I had never had a shore tour. I had a wife that hey, I Sheriff, missed. Sheriff, were you still a, a, re a reserve officer or had you augmented? No, I never did augment. I, I kept okay. my reserve commission. I'm kind of proud of that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well played. Nicely done. Well played, yeah. sir. Well played. <clears throat> yeah. But uh, I'd been in the fleet for a long time. I had two kids that I didn't really know. And I uh, had a wife that missed me and I missed her. And I decided to go ahead and get out at that point with 11 years of active duty. But after that, I went into the reserve and I wound up specializing in what was originally called coastal warfare. And they switched that over to expeditionary warfare. And I was pretty well suited for that. That was mostly uh, camping and shooting guns and setting up remote position that we could defend on our own with the weapons and the, and the equipment that we had. And uh, I did a couple of uh, trips to Korea to support that. Then I uh, retired from that kind of specialty. Nice. Nice. Well, let's back up a little bit because I know that you did fly a good bit while you were in college. In fact, we might've flown together once or twice. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> yeah. So we got our private tickets about the same time with, with at least within a couple months of each other at the, at the most. In fact, uh, we were students together and I had a friend who wanted to go uh, fly Navy. He had another friend who was a Tomcat driver in the Navy. So we'd gone out with them a couple of times and they were flying formation together. That kind of gave us the bug. I think we did a couple formation flights, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. Your, uh, your friend that was a Naval aviator, he taught us how to do it. And, uh, and we went out and did it until yeah. the FAA said, don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> We're student pilots. We show up at a, at a little airport called False River Air Park, which is about 25 miles west-northwest of Baton Rouge, Ryan Airport. And I remember a guy came out and uh, read us the riot act. We landed and he's like, oh, there's a lot of students out here. You can't be doing this. And uh, like, well, you know, did you guys come in as a flight of two. Of course we did. Oh yeah. And then into the, into the overhead, did the break, did pattern work, all that stuff, man. We were screaming oh, yeah. along at 110 knots into the break. That was impressive. <laughs> I know that was, was impressive. We impressed ourselves. Oh so. man, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So he told us we couldn't do it. And we said, yeah, well, actually there's no regulations against it, but he was kind enough to report us to the FAA. And then, oh. uh, Gerald and I got separate, but equal calls from, from the FAA going, uh, yeah. Tell him what happened on your, your side, Gerald. I think mine was similar. He was, he was actually very uh, accommodating, but also in a, in a position of authority, of course. And uh, he, he was saying that we should stop doing this. And I said, well, I'm not aware of a regulation that says that we shouldn't do it. Is there one? And he said, I'll find one. The purpose of your uh, solo pilot's certificate is to get your private pilot certificate. And that's the only purpose for it. And you're not doing that when you're out flying formation. So you two guys just get your private and then you can go out and you, you can fly formation. <laughs> so my response of course was yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> and I had a, I had a very similar meeting 
with the gentleman. So not long, not long after uh, we had our privates and we might've gone and done some more formation. Maybe. Yeah. In fact, uh, yeah. do you recall our mission from God? Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> Sheriff, why don't you tell your version of that and I'll see how much it matches up with my memory. Well, uh, we had found a, uh, a place that was, that was newly built. That was, uh, a, a large church area. Um, you could say it was like a large TV church area. And we had decided that it would be fun to go and uh, drop flour uh, in their pavilion and their parking lot uh, when there wasn't going to be anybody there. And we did that, and it turned out that there were some people there. So you were dropping flour bombs. Yeah, a little one-pound sacks of flour. Sacks of flour, yeah. 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 So yeah, so my like my recollection was it was a given it was a uh, televangelist who was uh, fairly well known, uh -huh. perhaps more well known to the uh, working girls of the community than uh, <laughs> than televangelists wow. should be. But you know, you got to go where the tax collectors and the prostitutes are, right? You know, to, right. so that's that's where he was. Everybody needs to be saved. <laughs> that's right. But I recall, yeah. So we went out as a flight of two. One of us went high at about 3,000 feet. The other guy went down about 50 to 100 feet over the trees, a couple miles out, vectored in over the trees and, and, and released. And you could see these little white dots hit the parking lot, boom. And they'd just go out into this big V in the parking lot. And one, one of uh, sheriffs went, the, it was a three-way building with a pavilion in the middle. And one of his just disappeared. And I said, well, he must've hit the side of the building or something. It, it just disappeared. So we finished our, uh, our work, went back out over the Mississippi river, worked our way up back up to uh, false river. I think sat it for, sat for a while and then went back separately. So as not to incriminate ourselves. <laughs> then, then as I recall, dry, we drove by there and uh, found that one of the sacks of flour had gone dead center into this sitting area between the three wings of the building, which was an open air pavilion. It had made its way under the, the overhang and into the middle. And you could see where someone had tried to sweep it up, but it was uh, like a rough stone decorative concrete deck. <laughs> there was flour everywhere. You weren't sweeping it up out of those stones. There was flour oh. everywhere. Oh no. <laughs> it was beautiful. Marge will clean this mess up later. So that huh. was our, we were on a mission from God. So you can say that was a shack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wish I could claim that one as mine. I think mine were all over the parking lot, but yeah, that was, that was a bullseye. Well, all right. So do you remember any other of the uh, stuff? We, I seem to remember going to grass strips all over out there. Any, any place, any opportunity we had to go, go put an airplane in the air and convert Afghans into noise. We took. Absolutely. Any, do you uh, recall any others? Uh, quite a few low flights over false river, uh, in combat spread They're the best that oh. we could approximate of it. There you go. <laughs> when he uh, says low, was... I think we were just shy of water skiing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're only going 90 knots, right? That's <laughs> relative though. Feet relative. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it now, is. 
you you uh so you had an extended fleet tour in the a6 right sheriff yeah and how many floats did you go on during that time period i did two full cruises aboard the abraham lincoln i did two full sets of workups on the abraham lincoln as well so a normal cruise was about six months yes is that about right yeah and all then- of my cruises got held to six months Actually, I should back that up. My first cruise was only about four months. I met the squadron in theater, uh, of course, in the Persian Gulf at that time. Uh, And then I did a full cruise with them the second time, which was also to the Persian Gulf. I did a full set of workups. Yeah. And then I left the squadron. So I'm, if I'm doing my math right, you, you went to the RAG in 89 or 90 ish. Correct. I started in 89 and was finished in 1990. So you joined your fleet squadron. They were already out at sea. And this was prior to Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait or after? No, it was after. Uh, Desert okay. Storm had already happened. I, I okay. was actually chomping at the bit in the rag to try to go out there. I remember going in and talking to the CO of the rag and telling him that uh, I'd heard we were going to deliver some of our airplanes to the squadrons that were in place at the RAG and that I was volunteering to help with those deliveries. And I was trying to do anything I could to get out there. Uh, but I didn't make it out there until uh, after the initial hostilities had ceased. And Four days later. <laughs> I think they were still yeah. calling it Desert Storm at that point. I don't think they were calling it Southern Watch yet on my first cruise. Yeah. So, in fact, I recall I, w- I went to safety school in 1990, and I seem to recall we took a field trip up to Whidbey Island. I seem to recall running into you up there at Whidbey Island at the RAG. We went and did a, a, a mock investigation in, in your squadron spaces. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So, you were a BN. What was the book? Was it Flight of the Intruder? Was that the book, Flight. too? I think they made a movie out of it. Yeah. Yeah. They. I read that book in college. That was good. What I'll ask you is describe what a BN is, what the mission is, some of the fun stuff you got to do. That was not for the faint of heart. Well, uh, a BN is actually a station in the airplane, and it's manned by naval flight officers. So I was a naval flight officer, and in the A-6, they call us BNs because that was the name of the station. Uh, In the F-14, they called that station a Rio. Uh, I think in the F-18... the Wizzo? E or F, whichever. I think it was the F that was a two-seat model. They called that station a Rio station. Okay. But the officers that man it are naval flight officers. Really, it's about managing um, the navigation and the targeting on the airplane. Just the simple thing that we do is we navigate and we target and we talk on the radios. And it allows the pilot flying to concentrate on that. Some of them call them Wizzos. I don't know which model was that did that, but that was the weapon systems officer, right? So yeah, I think that's an Air Force thing. Oh, is it? Um, oh, okay. Yeah, I think Wizzo is an Air Force thing. Okay. Ugh. Sorry. <laughs> Air Force. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So describe some of the missions that you did in the A6. If my recollection is you had terrain following radar and Uh, Yeah, we did. We uh, 
it, it wasn't just terrain following. Terrain following is when you just go up and down along your course. It was terrain avoidance. So we would go to the left or to the right because we could sweep as much as uh, 60 or 70 degrees either side of the nose. And we could see where the terrain was and we would follow that. And we had display systems in the airplane that would keep us at a specific altitude. In IMC in the mountains, we'd usually target somewhere between two or 500 feet to fly around through the mountains using the, the terrain avoidance system. So okay. we would do that for target ingress and egress. And then uh, when we were on government time, uh, we were focused on identifying where the target was and getting our weapons systems pointed at the target and delivering our weapons to that target. Um, and the terrain radar could be used simultaneously while we were uh, targeting as well. So uh, the airplane was an amazingly capable IFR attack platform. Uh, I haven't seen anything similar to it, um, but you know, I haven't really been paying attention to the new stuff that's been going on. I've been so focused on the job I'm in right now that right. I don't know what the F-35 is doing or uh, what the Strike Eagle is capable of or uh, any of those other platforms. I think the Super Hornet may be close in its payload, but uh, what, what was the payload of the A6? It was a me it was considered a medium attack bomber, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and um, I'd have to think on it for a little bit. But um, we carry uh, twenty six thousand pounds of fuel on the tankers, so off the top of my head, I I'm thinking that we're talking about around 10 or 12,000 pounds of bombs uh, okay. on the A6 attack platform because okay. it had uh, 16,000 pounds internal fuel. Nice. So okay. Something like that. That's, that's contrast. such a long time ago. Right. Yeah. You don't think of those numbers very <laughs> often, but I've tried I've to been through a wep another weapon system since I flew the, the A6. So yeah. Well, and that's it. And I think uh, by contrast in Harrier, we could carry, I think it was 12, 500 pounders. So 6,000 yeah. pounds yeah. or uh, I don't think. And a gun inside. Yeah, yeah, in, a, in a gun and, and then the AIM-9. Yeah. Or, but, or we uh, could carry, we could carry six. Well, we couldn't because we only had, four, we could carry 4,000 pounders because 4, we only pounders. had the two hard, the two yeah. hard points under each, yeah. each wing. So. The airplane was capable of air to air. We had uh, AIM-9 capability. They had gun pods, but they were, uh, they were junk. They were jammatics. So we didn't even, we didn't even try to use them. Really uh, have the fuel? We'd, if we thought there was an air-to-air -air threat that we wanted to be able to counter, we'd carry an AIM-9 on one station. Uh, we'd usually have a centerline drop and uh, maybe an LGB on one wing and a Maverick on the other. Nice. Very cool. So we did a lot of patrols like that over uh, uh, Somalia and over uh, Iraq. Okay. What uh, what would you say uh, would be? Don't have to come up with these right away. Think about them as we as we discuss here. Either that or the S three would be either the funniest and or could be the could be the same thing. The funniest and or the scariest thing uh, you ever saw flying uh, flying in the Navy. Oh gosh, there's lots of funny stories, you know, lots of <clears throat> scary ones too. <laughs> Let me ask this: Did you ever come close to pulling the handle? Because I don't think you ever, you never, you never shelled an airplane, did you? 
I never did. You're correct. And I did come close. So hear that. I was on my second cruise, I think. We had <clears throat> some brand new shooters show up on the ship, I think after workups. There was a misconception among some of the shooters. The shooters being the officers who ran the catapults on the ship. And these officers were typically uh, P3 officers or maybe C-130 pilots, P3 pilots or C-130 pilots. They were trying to get a sea tour in the Navy. You have to go to sea in order to promote. And they were trying to do that uh, before they became lieutenant commanders because it's kind of a check in the block in the Navy. You got to go to sea. And those guys didn't normally do that. So they were on their sea crews and they would end up being ship's company for a couple of years and running the catapults on the ship. And I don't know exactly the sequence of events that happened for them to make this decision, but normally the target for the airplane speed at the end of a catapult shot is the stall speed plus 15 knots for whatever weight and drag configuration you're at. And that was referred to as min in speed plus 15 knots. Well, somebody started reading into that without looking up the definition of min end speed, and they started dropping the speed down that they were giving us at the end of the catapult shot. So the catapult shot was really based on how heavy you were and what your drag count was. And we would actually put that number up on the side of the airplane so that all of the shooters and all of the personnel that were managing the catapults could see what our weight was and what speed we were supposed to have at the end of the catapult shot. It didn't say that, it just said what our weight was. And they decided to start dropping the target speed down because they said, hey, you know, men in speed, that's what we're gonna shoot for because every knot above that is increasing the wear and tear on our equipment and it'll reduce the maintenance that we have to do. Gotta save steam. The good idea fairy showed up on your <laughs> ship, basically. While this was going on, we were kind of unaware of it. And, uh, the first time I was made aware of it was during a uh, waste catapult shot. I'm going to guess it was Cat 4, because Cat 4 puts you in a position to see and be concerned about what I was concerned about. Yeah, so explain to people, a lot of people don't know about the, the what a waste cat is and, and the count on the cats and all that, so... Sure. So uh, the bow cats are cats one and two, and, and you count from left to right for the numbers for those catapults. So uh, the bow cat shoots you off of the bow of the ship, and the waist cat shoots you off of the angle deck uh, that's about 600 or 500 feet aft of the bow and on the left side or the port side of the ship. So uh, I think that we were lined up on cat four uh, on the waste cats, definitely on the waste cats. And I was with a, a pilot whose call sign was special, um, special ed and uh, a superb pilot. Uh, we were both uh, fairly senior in our JO tour and uh, we were carrying ordnance. Uh, we were launching uh, out for a mission in uh, the Persian Gulf. And so our, our weight was fairly high and our drag count was fairly high. And 
when we started on the cat stroke, both of us could tell that it was weak. We both immediately could tell that it was a weak cat shot. And when we cleared the shuttle, I would say we were right at stall speed. And special, before we even finished the cat stroke, had already raised the gear handle and was just counting on the weight on wheel switches to keep the gear down until we cleared the shuttle. He had already flipped the switch. And I saw him do that during the cat stroke. And, you know, I was, of course, concerned as well, but there was not much I could do. There weren't dual controls in the airplane. Ed was superb. Even if we had dual controls, there was nothing I could really do except get ready to get us out. So when we came off the catapult, we settled. I remember seeing 40 feet on the radio altimeter. Oh, shit. uh, As a bottom, uh, the deck's at 60 feet. But the tail of the airplane was about 20 feet high. And the LSOs reported to us that when we took our cat shot, we disappeared below the deck when we cleared the catapult. So we might've gotten lower and I just, I didn't see it (laughs) because my scan wasn't fast enough, but I immediately got into ejection position and I reached down, I put my hand on the handle and I remember looking up in the direction that I thought I'd be going if I pulled the handles. And I'd never noticed it before, but there are these large antennas all around the bow of a Navy carrier. And when we're doing flight ops, instead of the antennas standing straight up, they lean them down so that they're parallel with the surface of the water. And I remember thinking, I might hit one of those. And I wonder if I can time pulling the handle (laughs) so that I go in between the antennas as I egress from the airport. Which brings you to it. It's better to be lucky than good. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) But uh, we, we settled and got into ground effect and the airplane kind of, kind of wallowed. We could feel it buffeting, but it had stopped its descent and the gear was already coming up and it was accelerating. So uh, we stayed with the airplane and climbed it out. And uh, I remember afterwards, Ed came to talk to me and he said, you know, I'm glad you were there because I'd have flown it right into the water. He said, I was so focused on holding the right pitch attitude after the cat shot and stopping the rate of descent that uh, if you hadn't been there to get me out, I wouldn't have gotten out. Yeah, that's I'm amazing. Of it. So did he induce more drag on the aircraft by having the gear moving as soon as the wing came off the wheels? No, the gear on the, on the A6 didn't actually change the drag profile while it was going up. Okay. Um, Cause I know uh, in heavies, uh, you know, when we get into wind shear, they tell it, you know, don't, don't raise the gear because you're lowering the <laughs> doors and you're putting more drag on the airplane. Yeah. You're actually increasing the drag and, and at, at more risk for impacting the deck. If, uh, if you try to change configuration, if you're in, in danger of too, being too close to the deck. So yeah, there, there wasn't, I don't remember that being a, an issue in the A6. And, you know, there wasn't that much information available either. Right. I mean, we were trying to clean up the airplane, and I don't remember anything in the NATOPS manual about what to do if you got a cold cat shot other than to eject. <laughs> hey, Sheriff, so going off the waist, if, I, if I'm right, you know, going off the front of the ship, just like us rolling off the front of the ship in the Harrier, if we screwed it up in uh, – and went in the drink the ship's gonna run you over but off the waist cat it's that's not a, that's not an issue the just not dying from hitting the water uh 
Perhaps I suppose it could happen on, on cat four because that one's pretty much aligned with the direction that the ship is moving. Okay. Okay. Uh, and where no matter which cats you go off of, you're still supposed to do clearing turns. So if you go off the bow, you do your clearing turn to the right. And if you go off the waste cat, you do your clearing turn to the left. And you'll notice naval aviators are always doing that. As soon as they get clear, you see them bank to the left or to the right for just about 10 or 15 degrees. And then you straighten up. And you climb Aren't you supposed to do an aileron roll and then start your clearing turn? I mean, that's what they do in Top Gun, right? So, well, well <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think anything out there really has the, the energy to do that. <laughs> yeah. How fast can you lose your wings? Do you remember what the on a heavy jet how much what your target speed was going to be as you as you cleared the uh, front of the deck or 140 the 150 knots yeah. when you're when you're really heavy when you got a full load of ordnance or uh, the heaviest cat shots ever had were in the tanker believe it or not that thing okay. had 26,000 pounds of fuel plus whatever its uh, uh, empty weight was and it, it wound up being like 54,000 pounds or 52,000 pounds on a on a cat shot uh those were some impressive cat shots uh, pretty violent right yeah. yeah i remember uh my very first cat shot was in a was in a t2 black eye in flight school and first of all i get out to i get out to the carrier and i do my two touch and goes which is what you're supposed to do and then you're cleared to drop your hook and do your do your come aboard so uh, i i do my two touch and goes i drop the hook I come into the pattern. Everything looks good. I actually got a fair pass on it, but I got a hook skip bolter. So what you do, as soon as you touch down on the carrier, your throttle goes immediately to mill power, which is full power, full forward. So that if your hook misses, you go do another touch and go, which is what I did. So I, I, I land, I'm waiting for the deceleration and it's never coming. And I'm looking out at uh, what we lovingly referred to all the deck apes and I've not stopping. I'm just watching them go by and I settle a little bit as I go off the deck and go around again. They're like, yeah, try one more. I have got enough fuel for one more pass. Then I've got a bingo home. And so the next, next one I come around and I get aboard, I get the hook engages. I get a pretty good grade as I recall. And, but now I need gas. So they bring you over to the Island and they chain me down and I'm sitting there chained down. It's the only time you can kind of relax. Kind of on an aircraft carrier deck i'm minding my own business and all of a sudden i get boom you know and the whole airplane rocks and i look out my left wing has just been taxied into by another t2 buckeye i'm like ah uh -huh. and there's <laughs> bits of plastic and all that crap up because it had a tip tank but it had uh, all the lenses were out there for the lights the nav lights <laughs> and oh my god geez i don't have a bag or anything i've got i've got my wallet and my flight suit and that's it i'm about to spend the night on a carrier about five minutes later these dudes come out with speed tape they literally taped up the lens cover on my tip tank they filled me up with gas i did <laughs> i did my next five traps and and then went home so i got my five additional traps with it with a taped up wing tank yeah you think you know, that would ever happen in the air force oh not yeah. not no. until there was an investigation absolutely and, uh, right and a point paper written on how we could prevent that accident in the future yeah yeah but that was that was actually a bunny hole i went down i didn't mean to because i was thinking about my first time off the carrier so after all this happens i'm 
taxiing up and they give, they show you the weight board. It's a big, it's a big weight. I think it was a grease board. They used. they put the pen. Here's what your weight is. Here's what yeah. your speed is supposed to be. And you either give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And, and, uh, and once you agree to it, off you go. So they launched me off the front of the like USS Lexington. And it was so fast and so violent. I remember screaming like a little girl going, ee! <laughs> I'm going down the cat's and then and then i get off the end and it is so quiet and so calm compared to what it was two seconds oh, yeah. earlier i literally am yes I'm, I'm at full throttle you've got this little bar that you reach out with your fingers and grab so that your hand doesn't actually accidentally pull the throttles to idle on the cat stroke and I, i've got that my throttles are at full power and I actually had to look down to make sure my engines were still running me because comparatively speaking, it was so much quieter and so right. much less acceleration. I didn't know whether they were running. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's working. It's what it's supposed to do. I was hooked after that. I'm like, oh, I love this. This is good. Hey, stuff. Sheriff, so, did, did you did you go to uh the carrier in um in the uh T2 or the TA4 while you were in flight school? No, uh I uh I, I flew the T2 and I flew the TA4, uh, but going to the carrier wasn't in part of the syllabus. Okay, so the uh, first time NFOs. you were, that was so the rag. first time I went was at the uh, A6 rag. Yeah, wow. I secured on the Ranger in the A6. Okay. Oh, I remember uh, speaking of CQ in the first time. I, I got it. You got. I got to tell the. Remember, you got T-shirts. Did Did you do that in the rag? Did you get T-shirts for your CQ? Yeah. Okay, we, yeah. we, we had we had t-shirts for finishing and we had t-shirts yeah. for cq and we oh. had patches for all yeah. of that stuff exactly yeah. it's 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 like the the army and the air force with medals and badges we just t-shirts mm -hmm. for crap like that yeah but the class mm -hmm. behind me at uh at a4s at beville it was brilliant the lexington had gone into dry dock for maintenance and so they were having to do other kennedy other, right other boats so they brought in the kennedy and the class behind us, you may, you may have seen these figure or not. The class behind us had these t-shirts made up and, and it, it had the LSOs on there and the list of all the students that got their carrier qualifications on the back of the t-shirt and the picture of the carrier or something like that on the front. Well, the, these, this class, because they'd gone to the Kennedy had the t-shirt with or the picture of Marilyn Monroe with her dress blowing up. And it said, I bounced on JFK. <laughs> and it had all their names that you know back in the days when you could put shit like that and get yeah. away with it so that was yeah, back I, before political the political uh yeah had gone so in. so yeah. i i That's... i did i did i did do my uh t in the t2s that was on the it was on big john yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, here's here's you just triggered a memory what so i'll i'll be quick uh Two, two touch and goes, and then they tell you to put your hook down, you know, if you look like yeah. you got your, your shit together. And apparently I did, told me to put my hook down. And, and uh, I, you know, of course, when I grabbed that, uh, when, the, when I grabbed the wire, uh, you know, everything came to a screeching halt. I, I did not lock my harness. That was the one thing I had not done. And my head hit the gun sight, and all <laughs> the sweat, which I was sweating profusely, went onto the visor. Yep. And I was kind of in shock. No full power, not going anywhere. And then it was like the voice of God, really. It was the air boss. And he goes, yeah. 
So, all right, son, we got you. You can we pull the throttles back now. <laughs> that to kind of snap me out of it, you know? Yeah. yeah. You don't really need to lock your harness. You just, you get used to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bouncing your head off the glare shield. There you go. So. Hey, so speaking of glare shields, in the A6, you in the BNC, you sit a little lower and slightly aft. Is that right? Of That's the, correct. Where the pilot sit? That's and correct. So you had a, you had like a, uh, uh, well, uh, like a hooded, uh, like a hooded radar screen, you could put, you could put your head down and kind of get the, get the ambient light out of it. Is that Take right? Yes, exactly. Okay, uh, so and we use those things at night because when they're shooting at you, uh, the flashes can interfere with your ability to see the radar and the FLIR, the FLIR was down inside of that hood as well. Or looking infrared. <clears throat> so nice. We basically kept the hood on there all the time. So I, I've been told by uh, A6s, and by the way, I'm going to throw a couple calls at you because there were some guys that were instructors with me down in Kingsville that were um, a, A6 guys. It would have been your time frame. Budley? Oh, that doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Uh, uh, Duker? No, that doesn't ring a bell either. Okay. Those guys might have been East Coast guys. They might have been East Coast guys. Yeah. Uh, but they would say uh, if they were flying with a BN and they weren't getting along, they'd get them, they'd get them down in the radar, and then they'd slap on a bunch of G's <laughs> to, to, pin their, to pin them down. Is that true? Is that the kind of thing that uh, you you could look forward to? If you yeah, I, I, I've pilot? had pilots try to do that with me. Um, I've always uh, prided myself on my G tolerance and my ability to maneuver around when I needed to. So they couldn't actually pin me in there. When I was younger, I was very strong. I could, I could get myself out of that position. Another really interesting thing about the A6 is that all of the flight controls, push rods, go under the left side ejection seat and link up with brackets and control arms, pivot arms behind the seat. And if you're sitting in the right seat of the airplane, you can reach over and you can touch those things with your hand. <laughs> I see where so you're going with this. It would be very easy for a BN, for example, to reach and touch on the pitch control arm and just gradually increase the pressure you could see him trimming and then gradually release it and he's trimming back and then pull up on it and then he's trimming in the opposite direction and then gradually release that pressure. <laughs> if you were nice, you did it gradually. There, there were, were there were could... there were lots of little tricks we could we could play on each other. Oh, nice. that's fun. That's good stuff right there. The airplane had two switches on the seat on the right side of the seat that you use to control the tilt and the height of the seat. So you could adjust the seat to your physical size. And when you shut the engines down, within four or five seconds, the generators would drop offline and you didn't have any power on the airplane anymore. So uh, if you really wanted to, to get back at, at your, your buddy sitting in the left seat, as soon as he went uh, idle cutoff on both of those throttles, you just grab both of those switches and squeeze them together. And his seat would start moving down and forward. And it would move to that position to a point where you could barely get out of it. 
And then <laughs> the generators would cut off and then he'd be stuck in there <laughs> and struggling to get back out. Nice. So here, here's one. This one was actually pretty famous and it looks like it was your time frame. Um, did, did you know Keith Gallagher? Yes, I did. I replaced Keith Gallagher ah. uh, in the squadron when he did the uh, partial ejection. And uh, he did that with uh, Master. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I don't think I'm still in contact with Master, but I am still in contact with Keith. So, yeah, if you, uh, it's actually, I just was uh, trying to Google it to go, I think there's pictures of that somewhere and it came up pretty easily. If you go to GallagherStory.com, folks, you can read all about this and it's got an amazing picture. He was partially ejected from the aircraft. The seat went about halfway up the rails and then his chute went out and wrapped around the tail of the aircraft. So was this, was this the BN or the pilot? Yes, it was the BN. BN. And the pilot brought him aboard, but he was basically out there in 140, 150 knots of wind. It, uh, as I recall, it inflated all his sinuses and it, it screwed him up. Yeah. He was, he was out of the cockpit for almost a year, I think. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so what, uh, what was the issue that they originally were pulling the handle for? Well, uh, he didn't actually pull the handle. What he had happen was, uh, they were in a tanker and they were having, uh, a problem with transferring fuel from the drops into the internal fuel on the airplane. And the NATOPS manual addresses that particular issue. I still remember it. Uh, the assumption is that it's a, uh, a sticky uh, non-modulating pilot valve that controls fuel flow from the tanks into the uh, internal fuel. So the solution is positive and negative G on the airplane and they would say, hey, you know, we got 2.4 available. You ought to be hitting two at least in the negative side in order to, to get that valve broken loose and be able to get your transfer going. So they strapped in and locked up and, and got ready and uh, master put some positive G on the airplane. And then he, you pretty much have to dump that stick all the way to the instrument panel to get to uh, over two G's out of the airplane, negative G's. And uh, the top latch hold down mechanism for the, that brand of ejection seat uh, had a problem with cracking. And we didn't know about it until this particular accident happened. So his top latch mechanism was cracked. And when that two G's hit on the seat, it started riding up the rails all by Shit. itself. And the drogue chute got triggered by the position of the seat and the chute deployed uh, after the drogue and then it collapsed over the tail. And um, so when the seat went up, did it break the canopy? Yes, yes it did. It's, it was a through the canopy kind of system. Okay. Uh, we didn't have the little charges that broke the canopy like you yeah. guys did in yeah. the ABA. Uh, we just went right through it. <laughs> we had a breaker bar up there. Yeah. Yeah. It would just bust it open and then we had hard hits. The you know? So the, so the seat, the top of the seat broke the canopy and then the drogue chute uh, dis, dislodged out of the, out of the headrest and wrapped around the tail. Yeah, exactly. So uh, Yogi was basically waist high out of the cockpit above the, uh, the canopy in the airstream in an airplane going 400 something knots. 
Oh my gosh. And his mask and his visor were immediately ripped off. Yeah. He remembers looking down at master and then he couldn't see. And then he doesn't remember anything after that until he woke up in the hospital on the ship. Yeah. Well, that's probably, that's probably good that he does. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no he fear. had uh, pretty bad flail injuries to one of his arms. I can't remember if it was the right arm or the left arm, but if you watch the video, you'll see which one it is. Cause you can see that arm just flailing in the uh, in the airstream and uh, master had an emergency pull forward on the ship and he came in for <laughs> basically a taxi one wire okay pass okay underline there you go so which is the best grade <laughs> you can get <laughs> yeah he said uh, he wasn't passing up any wires nicely yeah. done yeah yeah normally a taxi one wire will get you a uh a uh, below a cut pass. pass yeah cut pass yeah <laughs> yeah because that'll that'll kill you um, so you so so that. just hey just so uh, we're all on the same sheet of music taxi one wire means he touched down and rolled into the wire in right. the first correct wire. Yeah. yeah yeah he touched down just past the round down <laughs> yeah which is you know like like you guys were saying on a normal day not good yeah but in in this case muy bueno yeah yeah he was doing what he needed to do to get yogi into the hospital <clears throat> that was awesome that was a fascinating story i remember when it was covered uh live back in 91 but uh, yeah if you hunt around you you can find the plat video yeah of it. okay so so uh sheriff when you when you went to the uh s3 where did the bn sit in the s3 was it also in the right seat well, it was uh, the positions in the S3 were TACO and COTAC because okay. it was a uh, it was tactical officer. Yeah. And the co-tactical officer, which was also a co-pilot, but they called the position uh, COTAC. One of the reasons I went to that airplane was because it had dual flight controls, which was yes. something that I was very interested in. Uh, I never did the pilot to NFO transition thing. So I wound up staying in the right seat of the airplane and progressing my career from there. Well, that was going to be my next question. Did you not, was that not something you were wanting to try? Because, you know, you, you were a pilot to start with. Well, it was, but it didn't work out that way. So uh, when I went into the Navy, uh, they had uh, what they called the blind pilot program uh, starting up about the time that I was in AOCS. And I was advised by an admiral that uh, flew A-6s to go ahead and go into the fleet as an NFO and then apply for a transition into the airplane. Because if I went to the blind pilot program, I would have been limited to props and helos. But if I go and fly the A6, then when I go into the, uh, uh, they call it the uh, NFO to pilot transition program. When I went into that, then uh, the vision standards were actually more lax than they were for the blind pilot program. And I would go right back to the A6 and I would be right back in tactical aviation. So I decided to go ahead and do that. And uh, I went into the A6 and you're eligible for the program after a year, but I was having so much fun in the fleet and I was, I was um, learning so much that I decided to stay for another year. Uh, I did not apply for the program after I'd completed a year. I said, you know what? I'll apply for the program after I've been here two years. 
and you know, it's easier to get endorsements than anyway, you know, when you're, when you're in your squadron, you develop a reputation all the way up the chain of command. And uh, after two years, I had an excellent reputation and uh, I figured I'd apply then. Well, between finishing my first year and deciding I was going to apply, there was an F-14 accident that involved a NFO to pilot transition uh, pilot. And they decided to suspend the program. So I wasn't able to apply for it while I was in the A-6. And then I went to the S-3. And while I was at the S-3 RAG, I applied for the program. And their response was, oh, you're too old now. You're too old to go ahead and do that program. That's too bad. So uh, I never revisited it again until uh, later on when I was about to get out. And, and then they told me I was too old right. uh, as well. So you got out. Did You did the reserve thing through retirement? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I, okay. I went into the reserve uh, about a year after. Uh, I was talking with a recruiter about doing it, and then uh, September 11th happened, and that pretty much dropped the hammer for me, and I went right back into active reserve right. uh, in September yeah. uh, of uh, 2000. I know a lot of guys so thought they up- were getting out in the fall of 19 uh, yeah. or of 2001. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Did you get an active duty retirement, Sheriff? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I'm going to start a reserve retirement here next year. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah me too. I got, I got a year off for good behavior. So I get it in uh, well, I get it in June of 25, 24, June of 24. So when mine kicks in. Nice. Yeah. It's good. It's going to be nice to, to have that benefit. I mean, it's already nice. It's, we're all eligible for uh, VA. Oh yeah. Uh, I do. I, I go once a year to, uh, to all that stuff. Hey, uh, just out of curiosity. So after you, um, retired, well, uh, after you left active duty and, uh, you did, you took a, you, was it a, uh, what'd you call it then? Was it a full-time reserve job initially? No, was I, it, I didn't. Was it a traditional type reserve? It was, I went straight into the traditional reserve, which is, you know, one weekend a month and yeah. two weeks and out then of orders year, as required. Which is not real. Uh, usually you do at least one weekend a month and usually two deployments a year yeah. <laughs> that are at least two weeks, sometimes three weeks, but that's, that's fine. You know, I was, I was liking what I was doing in expeditionary warfare. And so was, uh, flying career wise, t- tell us about that. How, how did that progress? So I, uh, after I uh, got out of the Navy, I, I went to work for a fractional provider. Yeah. What kind of equipment? Uh, I started out in the Challenger 604, and I flew that as a first officer for the company uh, for about four and a half years. Uh, and then I upgraded to captain in the Lear 45. Uh, and I was a captain in the Lear 45 until... Um, 2009, and then I trained into the Challenger uh, 300, uh, and uh, that is the airplane that I'm flying right now. Is a nice. Challenger 300. Is that an international? They have an international type range on it. Sheriff? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, this last year, I did a trip uh, from Dallas to. Um, uh, St. Martin, and then on to Cape Verde, 
off the coast of Northern Africa, which is about uh, 2,400 miles for that particular leg nice. over the ocean. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good oceanic platform. I mean, it's not, it's not a, uh, an L-1011. <laughs> but, how, many, uh, how many passengers typically? <clears throat> well, it's set up like a limousine. So there's double club seating. You got eight seats in the airplane. Uh, you can sit somebody on the lavatory seat. There's seat belts there, but we don't really uh, see that used very often. So uh, it's it's like the limousine of uh, aviation travel. Right. Yeah. So my wife tells me after we win this eight hundred million dollar lottery tonight, I'm I'm going to buy one of those. There you oh, go. Well, awesome. <laughs> I can steer you in the right direction to do that. If there you want. Go. I thought you might be able to. <laughs> might even be able to help you train some pilots here too. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, well, let me let me divert the story here a little bit. Then, um, folks, I I told you that uh, we would have uh, some amazing stories and some inspirational stories and some poignant ones, some tragic ones, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm about to take us down an avenue that uh, even Fig doesn't know about. Oh, but I, I promised Fig that this was going to blow his mind. Um, I, like I said, I've known Gerald for 43 years, and he is one of the most uh, fearless pilots and genuine good friends you can uh, you can have. When uh, when I was widowed 27 years ago, Gerald offered me his savings account. He genuinely meant it. I was like, I'm blown away by it. To this day, I am I am blown away by that generosity. Um, this, this is a man who is, uh, fearless, tenacious, and, uh, well, you're just going to be amazed. Uh, so I'm gonna get serious here for a couple minutes and use some touchy feely words, but I don't need, know any other way to do this. Um, Jer uh, Sheriff, you've got a story that's, that's both amazing and uplifting. And I, I'll bet a month's salary that, uh, this is going to inspire people, uh, who have quit something because it was hard or wanted to quit something because it was hard. Um, but uh, several years ago, I came to visit you, uh, but I couldn't couldn't get in to see you because you were in the intensive care unit at Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas. And uh, for those who don't remember, that's where they took uh, President Kennedy after he was assassinated. Uh, you had recently been involved in a motorcycle accident that resulted in you becoming an amputee. Uh, yet today, you have an unrestricted first-class medical. So can you walk us through the journey that you have traveled going from being healthy one day and suddenly finding yourself facing the immense challenge of being, uh, I'm going to use this term because at the time you were going from being perfectly healthy to being disabled and likely losing the career that you loved and worked so hard for, for so many years and find yourself today an unrestricted pilot as an amputee. So, yeah, the, uh, the accident you're talking about happened in 2006, happened in the summer of 2006. Uh, I was a captain on a Lear 45 at the time. Uh, and I don't really remember very much about the accident. Uh, it was severe enough that um, I don't even remember showing up at the hospital. I remember a little bit afterwards and a little bit right before it happened. Uh, and then the rest, I just remember after I woke up in the hospital, which was actually after I got out of the ICU. So I was pretty severely injured. I'd broken a, a lot of bones. 
and I'd had an injury to my right arm that's called a scapular thoracic disassociation. It's basically when your arm gets pulled out away from your body far enough that it's not really connected anymore except by you know basic muscle tissue and, and tendons. Uh, and then uh, the muscle and the tendons all pop back, but the nerves and the arteries do not. And uh, so I was bleeding out into my chest uh, and there was a, a, my arm got mangled in the accident. And there was a really smart EMT. He's actually the guy who saved my life. Uh, he showed up at the accident scene and was treating me. And he told the other rider that I was with, he said, that arm should be bleeding and it's not. So I'm calling a, a helicopter. And that's what uh, wound up saving my life. So they helicoptered me over to Parkland. And I spent about a month in the hospital. And when I got out, if they'd actually known what condition I was really in, they wouldn't have let me out. <laughs> but I didn't want to be in the hospital anymore. So I managed to convince them to let me out and hobble my way out. And uh, I went through uh, about a year of recovery. And uh, my company did an awesome job of supporting me through all of that. And when I was ready to start working again, uh, they had me take on an instructor position at our training center. And that was really good for me because it allowed me to get in the simulator and uh, figure out how to fly an airplane again, even though I couldn't use my arm. And I went through the process of, of uh, going to doctors and trying to get my arm repaired so that I could use it again. And uh, all of that wound up failing. So after I was certain that it was failed, I went ahead and I had my arm amputated because it was just, it was flail. I couldn't move it. It was always in the way. So I had it amputated and then I got my medical back and I did that by doing a medical flight check with the FAA. And that's not a very fun process to go through from a paperwork standpoint, the actual check in the, in the simulator, I was, I was well enough prepared for it that I thought it was easy when uh, I actually got in there with the FAA, but that was around uh, late 2007 or early 2008 that I got my medical certificate back uh, and it was unrestricted and uh, I got cleared to fly again. They call it a uh, demonstrated ability waiver. That's awesome. That is just yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so I got a lot of questions. I got a lot of questions now, Sheriff. <laughs> I told you I was going to blow your mind. I know, I'm totally. Okay, so where, where, how much of your arm was amputated? Well, it's uh, amputated above the elbow, but below the shoulder. Okay, so do you have a, uh, a mechanical prosthetic that you can I, grip? I have one, but I don't use it to fly. Okay. I fly so without a prosthetic. All right. So, okay. Now, uh, so how do you go from throttles to throttles to yoke, throttles to yoke? I mean, cause you had to do it. You had to demonstrate it. Mm -hmm. So you, you're just, you're just fast. I just use one hand and yeah. you can use your legs. You know, you can put your leg against the yoke. If the airplane's yeah. not perfectly trimmed then you can stop the yoke and reach over and adjust the throttles and then put your hand back on the yoke and That's make awesome. adjustments. It's, awesome, uh, it, it's not as hard as you would think that it is well i suppose you adapted pretty damn quick 
I I'm thinking I'm, there's no way I could do that, but yeah, you, I bet you, you figured it out pretty damn quick. So I got a, I got a, one of my, uh, one of my success stories was I had a kid that he was in my squadron. He, he, he lost his eye on the 4th of July. And, uh, after five and five or six years of trying to get sight back in that eye, he finally gave up and did what you did demonstrated, uh, uh, what'd you call it? Uh, demonstrated ability waiver. Demonstrated ability waiver. One time I took him, uh, I had a Cessna 172 at the time and he, I got him current and then he, he went out and rented a plane and took an FAA guy out and did just that. And he got his medical back and, uh, went back to flying King airs over in Afghanistan and building time. And short story is he's now at one of the majors yeah. with, with, with one eye. One of the things that helped me is that I uh, inherited orangutan arms from my father. <laughs> so uh, when I was doing my medical flight check, the FAA inspector uh, said, just kind of out of the blue, he, he had never mentioned this before, we're in the simulator and we're done with the check. And he said, well, in order for me to sign you off without any restrictions, I'm going to need you to fly this single pilot. And the airplane's not certified to fly single pilot. But I said, okay, I can do that. And because I have orangutan arms, I was able to reach over and move the gear lever and move the flap lever in order to reconfigure the airplane. So uh, all he wanted to see was me go around a trip in the traffic pattern uh, without any assistance from the pilot in the right seat. And cake. Uh, it, it's doable. Uh, That's an but awesome story. If man. I had little short Tyrannosaurus Force Rex arms, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. If you had the alligator arms, <laughs> yeah, can't I can't. Sorry, I can't, I can't reach the, the bill. I, I can't reach the bill, boys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, sheriff um, won't say it, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm friends with his parents too, and and I'm pretty sure it was his mother that told me that the FAA inspector told him afterwards that uh, he he actually flew better than several people he'd ever flown with that had both their both arms. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I saw and, that coming. Yeah. And, uh, it's just amazing to, to watch Sheriff do, um, do some of the things he does, you know, if it slap a holster on and take it off, I, I've struggled with two hands to get a holster on and, uh, watch you do that. And, uh, uh, it's, it's amazing. So, um, anyway, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for, for sharing that with us. That was not, uh, I, I know that was a, uh, a long, painful couple of years to get through and still presents challenges, I'm sure on a daily basis, but to watch you go from being right-handed and losing your right arm and learning to do everything that you do left-handed and better than most people with two hands. Yeah. That's well, awesome. that's I, I am still right-handed. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still, yeah. I still am right-handed, but yeah. yeah, you adapt. I mean, you don't, you don't really right. have a choice, right? If you want to go out and do things, you got to go do them. Yeah. And you are, that's awesome, man. It's thank it, you for sharing all that. Yeah. One of the most impressive men I know. Hands down. Well, that's, that's saying something right there Yeah, because yeah. he knows a lot. He knows a lot of dudes. Yes. yes and do. you do have an impressive mustache, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. Mama hates it. <laughs> I was out sick for a few months, and so I let all the facial hair grow. I had to get rid of the beard because of the, because of the action mask seal and all that, but uh, kept the handlebar mustache, at least for a little while longer. I hope you keep it forever. Well, Sheriff, thanks for coming on with us. 
it's been inspirational to say the least. And we're truly grateful that you were able to come and spend some time with us and hope you'll uh, be willing to do that again. Folks, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at fig at so there I was dot us or repeat at so there I was dot us. You can find us on Facebook at so there I was dot us slash Facebook or Twitter at so there I was dot us slash Twitter. I want to give a special shout out this week also to the folks over at the Mac Geek Gab. That's one word, Mac Geek Gab podcast. They have given us all kinds of technical support. Dave Hamilton, who runs that show with John F. Braun, has been generous with his time, his technical abilities, and helped us put this together, helped us get the website together. And they put out a show weekly, as is this, and they have been tremendously helpful in getting everything down from how to do the recording, how to post it, how to make the website look good, all the technical things that we do with recording. So thank you over to the folks over at Mac Geek Gab. And with that... I'm going to say uh, to you, gents, thanks for being with us today. Fig, Sheriff. Thank you, Sheriff. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Check six. I didn't do it.